Cambridge Analytica was not an advertising agency, at least not according to its CEO, Alexander Nix. To boost the campaigns of political candidates all over the world, Cambridge Analytica wanted to change the voting population, not the candidate's message. But how does this work? Nix likened the approach to working with Coca-Cola to sell more soft drinks in movie theaters. Imagine, he said, that an ad agency was hired to help Coke sell more sodas before the movies. What they would do is pump up the branding. There'd be Coke signs at the counter, Coke ads on the wall, a Coke ad before each film. The strategy would be built around the brand. Now imagine that Cambridge Analytica was tasked with the same challenge. The CEO, Nix, wouldn't worry about Coca-Cola at all. Their strategy would start by learning more about the audience. They might ask theatergoers a simple question. Under what circumstances would you drink more Coke? The audience would drink more Coke if they're really thirsty. With that data, what would Cambridge Analytica suggest? To turn up the temperature in the theater. Coke, please. Uh, Coke, please. Where's my Coke? I need a Coke, Coke, Coke. Coke, can I have a Coke, please? This was the Cambridge Analytica approach, the very same approach they used when the Trump campaign called. How do you get people to vote for a candidate with almost 100% name recognition? You do it by influencing voters, by changing their behavior. Using data about people's spending habits, their voting history, and data scraped from Facebook, their algorithm used data to determine who could be persuaded to vote for Trump. And then they bombarded them with negative content designed to scare them to the ballot box. Today, we talked to the insider who exposed how Cambridge Analytica used our data against us. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer about the hidden gems, the hotspots, and dark alleys in the world of communication. On today's episode, we talk to the Cambridge Analytica whistleblower herself, Brittany Kaiser. She's the author of the book Targeted, which is the story of her time as a rising star at the company. The book goes into detail about how Cambridge Analytica used data scraped from Facebook to build intimate profiles of citizens all over the world, and how that data was used to influence them to vote for conservative causes like Brexit and Trump. Today, Brittany speaks publicly about the importance of data privacy, and she runs a foundation promoting digital literacy. Brittany, thanks very much for being here. Yes, absolutely. So um, you've, you've seen quite a few things for someone of 33. Just talk us through, you know, your, your education and then ending up doing the Obama campaign. After George Bush won his second term, I told everyone if that happened, I would leave America and not come back for a while, which was precisely what I did. <laughs> so I, I left to go to Edinburgh Uni, which is, I mean, Edinburgh is one of the most beautiful places on earth. But when I got accepted for a job on the Obama campaign, I had to say yes and, and go back home for a little while. So did you finish your degree? I did, yes. I came back to finish my degree and ended up doing a couple more degrees as well. Uh, I stayed in the UK for almost 14 years. 
So talk us through the Obama campaign, because it's obviously vastly different to the Trump campaign. In a recent, well, not so recent, but an interview I, I had with uh, Tristan Harris, I heard you explaining how Obama refused to do anything negative. And that's quite opposite to the way that the Trump campaign worked. Absolutely. That was, I would say, my introduction to full-time campaigning, working for Senator Obama, where all of our messaging was 100% positive. And because I was on the new media team managing a lot of the social media accounts, we even had a policy that if our supporters had negative things to say about either our rivals or even other people in our own party, that we would delete that. And that was my first introduction to, I suppose, my current worldview. You know, I, I was studying as a human rights lawyer. And if you study human rights, you get taught that although you have the right to free speech and many other rights, uh, your rights are not unchecked. Your human rights end where another person's rights begin. So if you do not have the right to use your right to free speech in order to encroach on someone else's rights. You cannot incite violence on someone. You cannot, you know, spur on racial hatred against them. You cannot suppress their vote, for example. And that's what we decided on the Obama campaign. And we had a very strict rule. And we even closed off some of the opportunity for our supporters to even comment on our social media pages when it got to you know, sticky of a situation, I suppose, or when it took too many of our volunteers to delete comments that were tantamount to uh, incitement of violence. Which is quite so, a controversial thing to do online, right? I mean, a lot of people would have been quite opposed to the idea of being able to filter what's being said, freedom of speech, platform conversation, publishing conversation, this conversation that's been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Was this being yeah, driven by, by Obama himself or was it being driven by somebody else in the team? Um, this was internally amongst the new media team. Uh, Chris Hughes, who co-founded Facebook with Mark Zuckerberg, uh, was on our team. Uh, Gray Brooks was the head of our team, who's now uh, in charge of all API strategy at uh, GSA, which you know controls all of the back-end building of technology for the U.S. government. And we just decided that we did not want to play host to something that could cause in-person or, or physical violence based off of something that was read on our social media pages. So this all sounds quite you know, utopian, working for Chris Hughes and Barack. Why would you leave there and join Cambridge Analytica? <laughs> so it, it wasn't as easy as uh, that quick transition <laughs> makes okay. it sound. After the Obama campaign, I saw that the way that we were using technology tools which was to gather more basic data off of social media so that we could have more effective communications. I saw how incredibly effective that was. And since I was studying as a human rights lawyer, a lot of the human rights organizations and nonprofits and charities that I had worked with for my research, you could tell that they had not a lot to work with in terms of getting their campaigns out there. So I spent the next many years consulting to nonprofits, charities, human rights, NGOs, uh, United Nations departments, teaching them some of the tricks and tools that I had learned on the Obama campaign. And, you know, you could call me naive or you could call me eternally optimistic, (laughs) which is the one that I prefer, of course. But I really saw these tools as a huge opportunity to make an exponential positive impact in the world. 
And I suppose it's because I hadn't seen them abused before. It was many years later when I was three years into my PhD and I was studying something called preventive diplomacy, which means how does a head of state or an ambassador or someone with important political clout, how does someone make a decision that prevents a crime against humanity, prevents war, prevents massive violence before it happens? And this ended up being a concept, although I was studying at a law school, uh, that was grounded just in data science. How much data do these leaders have access to? How good are the data scientists that are doing the modeling and analysis? And how quickly is that getting in the hands of people making decisions? So I thought, hey, I really need to know a lot more about data science than I learned back in my days at the Obama campaign. So one of my friends introduced me to the CEO of Cambridge Analytica and the SCL group. So I could at least interview him for my PhD work. Uh, but at the time, I also was looking for a part-time job so that I could keep on funding my trips to Geneva and Brussels to go to all these human rights conferences. And uh, well... And he said, let me get you drunk and steal your secrets. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, that is very true. Okay. Uh, you, like a nice you can't guy. make that up. <laughs> and you thought, I should work with this guy. He sounds like such a decent guy. Right. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> looking back on it. <laughs> but at the time, it seemed like my best opportunity to actually learn at a professional level what people were doing in terms of data science and politics, data science and defense. Uh, the first project that I was shown when I went into the SCL group office was that these people were consulting to all NATO militaries in order to teach them how to identify young people who were vulnerable to being recruited into ISIS online and how to run uh, counter-propaganda communications to keep them at home with their families and not sneaking themselves into Syria. So I thought, well, if they can use data science in order to save lives in this kind of way, you know, I want to learn how to do that. And did you? I mean, I always picture Cambridge Analytica like the boiler room. You Have you seen that film? <laughs> yeah. People come and work at this firm for one reason, to become filthy rich. That's it. We're not here to make friends. We're not saving the fucking manatees here, guys. You want vacation time? Go teach third grade public school. Yeah, as if, I don't know. I can imagine that at the time it would have been quite, quite exciting to be in the room, right? With a lot of people, with an awful lot of information that are finding new ways of doing things that hadn't been done before. Yeah, exactly. So when I first joined the company, I spent really a lot of the first few months learning. All the people around me were consummate professionals from all over the world that had an incredible array of experience. And them just showing me what they were doing in terms of research design, in terms of the types of algorithms that they were building, the tools and the platforms that they were using, and the types of ways that this could be applied to different projects. They were doing projects for governments, political parties, militaries, corporate companies. And I thought, hey, well, you know, this is this is somewhere I really want to be. This is the cutting edge of how technology can make things happen more quickly, more efficiently, et cetera, and so forth. <laughs> it was and, definitely cutting edge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was painting a picture. What's it like there? How many people are there? When I first joined, there were about 15 people at the company, um, full-time. Oh, I was pictured like 500. Okay. 
At the peak, we had about 150 people full-time. But when I first joined, there were about 15, and then a roster of global part-time consultants or people that would be brought on for you know, a couple months for project-based work, especially if it was, you know, an election in a particular country where somebody spoke the language. Uh, So So Alexander Nix was pretty good at doing his own PR too, right? Because I I think the interviews that I've seen with him, he gave the impression that this was a a big corporation. And I've heard uh, other people talking about, you know, billion-dollar business that was hugely impactful. I mean, it was impactful, but it was a tiny organization. Yeah, when I first started in uh, December 2014, headquarters was a small, tight ship. And when I joined Alexander, the CEO was the only salesperson. Uh-huh. So being brought on for business development meant I I was brought with him everywhere he went, to every meeting, okay. to most of his business trips, so that he could not literally have to do every single pitch and every single contract negotiation finally. So at any point through this, did you have any interaction with Steve Bannon? Yeah, the first time I met Steve was in September 2015. Okay. That was when Alexander took me to D.C. And we went to his house, which is a house that I believe is actually owned by the Mercers uh, on A Street in Capitol Hill. You had the Some keys to it call- or something, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some people call it the Breitbart Embassy because Steve lives there, but also in the basement, there's a Breitbart office. And we went there to kind of do a first introduction. And when I first walked in, Steve starts showing me these videos of Hillary. The first one was of Hillary like coughing and sputtering, like obviously an actress playing Hillary. And it was some sort of, you know, ad that was inferring that Hillary was too sick to be a candidate. I mean, just contrast to Barack Obama's campaign. What's your feeling when you're looking at this stuff? Yeah, I mean, he was laughing and I looked at it and I was like, my internal dialogue said, well, you know, this ad isn't very convincing. I'm not really sure like well, what audience this is supposed to sway or persuade. But uh, it, when he saw that I wasn't really laughing, he he said, well, I thought you didn't like Hillary either. You're an Obama girl, right? <laughs> You already helped run a presidential campaign against Hillary and won. <laughs> We're going to do that again. It's like, okay. <laughs> and as a guy, nice guy? Uh, he was a smart guy. Sure, I, I don't think nice is the word. I'm very smart. He started going into all of the things that he was laying out for Alexander or for you know the growth of Cambridge Analytica, all the people we were going to meet all the contacts he was going to give us. It was, you know, every other Republican that was running for president because at the time we were working for Ted Cruz. And soon after that, we were working for Ben Carson. But he was going to introduce us to Carly Fiorina and Jeb Bush and all of these other people, Republicans running for Senate, for governor, different, you know, PACs and super PACs and advocacy groups. And I thought, you know, that this is all really interesting. You know, it's not... It's not my party. I've generally worked uh, for the progressives, the Democrats, but uh, this is still the stuff that I love. This is really interesting. I'm excited to meet these people. So this is a huge opportunity for me. And uh, while we're in the meeting, Donald Trump calls him and he puts the call on speakerphone. (laughs) 
And Donald Trump is talking about how he's, you know, quickly rushing to get everything ready so that he can come down to D.C. for this big rally. And Steve Bannon had organized an anti-Iran deal rally, which uh, was awkward for me because when I was in the U.K., I, I worked with Jack Straw in order to promote the Iran deal, actually. Oh. <laughs> so, And you pitched Donald Trump right there and then. Yeah, so he, he said, oh, Steve, like, when are your English guys coming to see me? <laughs> this campaign's getting big. Like, we need your English guys. And he goes, oh, well, Alexander and Brittany are right here. I'll send them to go see you. So Steve sends us to New York to go see him the next day. Where did you meet? Trump Tower. Uh, in Trump Tower. Amazing. Yep. Um, I forget which floor it is, like the 27th floor or something like that. I had never been in Trump Tower before. I, I walked out and Corey Leandowski comes to greet us, who was campaign manager at the time. And for some reason, even though I've never been in Trump Tower, this whole scene looks very familiar. And Corey goes, it looks like you've been here before, huh? Like, haven't you ever watched The Apprentice? <laughs> like, what? Right. He goes, oh, yeah, we, we took over the old Apprentice set. It's our office now. So... I'm sitting there being like, okay, so this is a reality TV set, but it's actually Campaign HQ. That seems appropriate. <laughs> so you're, I mean, so you're a PhD student who's studying human rights, who's clearly, you know, attracted to numbers and you're attracted to the sort of intellectual challenge of analyzing this information and, and using it for, in theory, good. And then you're in a room with, you know, what are we going to call them? Megalomaniacs? <laughs> you can call them that, yes. So what's your pitch <laughs> Yeah, well, at the time, you know, he had been running a campaign with about two people working for him in Trump Tower. <laughs> um, literally, there was a campaign manager and a head of communications and was just, you know, doing some TV interviews, no rallies. It was very basic um, at the time, like pretty inoffensive in general. And what I had been told by Steve and, and Alexander was that we were just there to get a relationship with the, the Trump Corporation, that Donald was never going to win. He was never going to become nominee. But if we could do something for him now, then maybe we could do something for the Trump companies in the future. So I was told that I could give a commercial pitch if I wanted to. <laughs> and, and that I should really have in the back of my mind that this is more a Trump Corporation pitch than a, a political campaign meeting. Right. Which, you know... Nobody at that time thought that Donald had any chance of doing well. He didn't even have a campaign team. And uh, the pitch was really, you know, you, ha you have nearly 100% name recognition. All you need to do is figure out who your audience is. What messages are resonating with people who actually vote as opposed to watch TV? And how are you going to mobilize those people to actually come out and vote for you? And so it was building the first data-driven infrastructure, because they had none of that, you know, building that database, getting models running, being able to start putting together your audience groups, because what I was told was the first project we would perhaps do for the Trump Corporation was to create Trump TV. And what was it going to be? The Trump TV was going to be a network that was driven by Trump's messaging. So while he ran oh for God. president, quote unquote, he would figure out 
who his audience was, what types of messages resonated, and that would help them figure out the types of programming they were going to do. And they would already have the data of everybody that enjoyed and tuned in to listening to him during the campaign. And they'd be able to launch that TV network. And and that was the plan. I think everyone was pretty much on the same page that this was not going to be a someone who becomes a nominee and becomes president conversation. What was the moment then that it became obvious that it was no longer about Trump and the Trump organization or Trump TV or anything else, and it was really going to be him running for presidency and how negative it was? Yeah, absolutely. So Cambridge Analytica didn't start working full-time for Trump until he became the nominee. Okay. We spent most of the end of 2015 and early 2016 finishing up our work for Ted Cruz, who was still doing very well in the primaries. And when he decided to drop out, uh, we went to go support Donald Trump. And so from around May 2016, I suppose, is when our team first went down to San Antonio to work under Brad Parscal. And it was at that time where, you know, in the six months previous, since we had first done that pitch with me and Alexander in Trump Tower, those six months, they still never hired anyone to build a database. They didn't have anyone running traditional data. Trump had won the nomination just from the press having nobody else on. So it was estimated that by the time he became nominee, he had been given $2 billion in free advertising by press outlets. Yeah. And I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. If you take that background, a large part of this is down to the traditional media, let alone social media, right? Because before we get into the social media conversation, the the old school media had a you know a huge role to play in this. So, but how many times have you met Donald Trump now at this point? Are you now mates? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> I've been in the the same room as him multiple times, but mm-hmm. you know. Besides shaking his hand once, we've never really had a relationship. Thank God. Any any family interaction? <laughs> oh, I've met everyone in his family at this point, yeah. Any of them nice, stand out, interesting, different? Are they all the same? Some of them are, are pleasant, but, you know, it's always been at a big kind of political event. You know, we're watching the election returns come in or we're at a Republican fundraiser or something like that. So we're now into... Trump campaign. I'm assuming Trump's taken over his own social media. He's not listening to anybody. He's doing his own thing. At what point was it clear to you that the strategy was about basic fear and hate? So when Cambridge started working for Trump, either you were going to work for Trump, which became about, you know, a third or almost a half of our company, or you were not going to work for Trump. And um, I chose not to work for Trump. So I was spending a lot of time back in Europe or in Mexico, just doing other commercial and political projects and trying to kind of step away from what was going on in the U.S. Now, when Donald Trump won the election, and this was a shock to basically everybody, including people at Cambridge Analytica, we had the best numbers, which showed that Trump had a a 30% chance of winning, right? And most people thought he had a 2% chance of winning. Now, a month after the election, we were given a presentation by everybody in the Trump campaign team and in the Super PAC team. And that's 
when they showed us exactly what they did. When I had this kind of come to Jesus moment of, oh my God, this is what my colleagues were actually doing. They started by explaining to us how they built the database, all the data they were using. And then the first audience groups that they broke people up into. One of these audience groups was a deterrence group. A what, sorry? A deterrence or deterrence. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've spent half tomato, my life in America, tomato. half in the UK. Yeah. And I always forget which uh, inflection is easier for which side to understand. Yeah. <laughs> and so this, this group was in this data chart where it showed, you know, Trump voters and Hillary voters on, you know, further to the X or Y axis, and then people who are likely to vote or unlikely to vote. And the Hillary voters that were kind of, you know, 50-50 on whether they would vote or not were called the deterrence group. So they would they were to be targeted with messaging that would turn them off from voting for Hillary Clinton because no matter how much money was spent on messaging, talking to these people about Donald Trump, they would never vote for him. They're not swing voters. So one of the, you know, we're, we're about an hour into the presentation and we're already being shown voter suppression tactics. This is the, I think, maybe December 8th and 9th of 2016, a month after the election. Mm-hmm. And they go further and start to show the messaging and the advertising and the tools that they were using in social media. I mean, it just got worse and worse. They were able to tell scientifically that the most impactful messaging was fear-based messaging targeted at neurotic people, to people who are persuaded by their fears and insecurities. Right. And the examples of those messagings were also incredibly shocking. You know, some of it was straight up disinformation. For instance, there was one campaign targeted at women who saw family values as their number one issue. And there was an old speech that Michelle Obama had made when she was on the campaign trail with Barack in 2007, when I used to get to have dinner with her every Monday. <laughs> and uh, That's nice. her and the girls would eat with all of us interns. Um, so it gave us an opportunity to hang out with them, interact with them. The girls were really young at that time. So we'd throw like a pizza party or whatever it is. And she really cared about like making sure there was time for family on the campaign trail. So she made this speech saying, oh, you know, if you can't run your own house, you can't run the White House. So Barack needs to make time for family while he's doing this, or he's not going to be able to do the job as president, right? And the super PAC had twisted this language around, spliced in with videos of Hillary Clinton, making it seem as if Michelle was saying, Hillary Clinton's husband cheated on her, so she can't run her own house. Therefore, she could never run the White House. And, you know, it just progressively got (laughs) worse and worse. No, I get it. So what are you saying to friends when they're saying to you, what do you do at work today? So I, over the past few months, I had basically decided, like, I didn't like the way the company was going. And I was going to move to another country and start a new office where I was in control of all of the contracts we had, all the clients we had, and therefore the projects. And that was the only way I was going to stay at the company. So I had already moved to Mexico, actually, and was working mostly on commercial projects there, but on some political projects too, that 
were my relationships, people that I wanted to work with, people that I thought were great, projects I thought were interesting and positive. What ensued was me quickly saying, like, I'm leaving America. I'm not going to be a part of this. And it was only a couple of weeks later that I quit Cambridge Analytica. Actually, I got in a big fight with Alexander. And, you know, I just said, like, you know, enough's enough. I don't want to be a part of this. I, I, I can't do it. And I didn't think that I was going to take my work computer and rifle through it and find things that I would show to the entire world. That was not what I thought I was going to do. But over the kind of eight to 10 weeks after I left the company, progressively more and more news articles started to come out questioning what Cambridge had done during the election. And sure enough, sometimes they'd be talking about things where I had full documentation of what was done or not. And eventually, when the article came out where Chris Wiley said, hey, Cambridge never deleted the Facebook data. It's like, wait, what? I, I have an email thread with our chief data officer telling Facebook that he was deleting data. So why was that important? <laughs> because when I went back through that thread, I realized that Facebook had asked for all of the data that was ever gathered from Facebook and the models that were derived off of that to all be deleted. And how much data would we be talking about here? Well, um, for about 30 million people having an average of 560 data points, just so, the, and that's just the US. So we can also yeah. assume that they probably wouldn't have deleted the data from the UK elections and Brexit. Well, they likely didn't delete anything, uh, to be fair. There was no contract signed. It was an email where the woman from Facebook finally says, oh, well, thank you very much. I guess this is, you know, a case closed. And I thought, oh, God. If the entire world is freaking out about this exact conversation and I've got a copy of it, what else do I have that people probably need to see? And what's driving you at this point? Is it is it a moral obligation? Yes. Okay. Immediately. Also because I, I knew that most of my other colleagues either had left Cambridge to go into other similar positions or they were still working at the company and they were unlikely to assist the press, right? And would Cambridge Analytica have had more access or less access than other companies that were doing, you know, similar work? To Facebook data, sorry. Oh, um, well, they would have had the same access as anyone in the developer program, right. which was about 40,000 different companies. The difference being that other companies didn't have Nigel Farage and Donald Trump as clients. Correct. So Cambridge Analytica disappears. What's happening in your head? Because, I mean, it must have been a huge amount of pressure too. It's not, this isn't a small thing. This is not just going to affect a couple of people. This is, you know, one of the most powerful men on earth talking about a company, you know, and I'm assuming Alexander Nix is probably quite a powerful guy too, well-connected, and very importantly, a company like Facebook, which again, one of the most powerful men on earth. What's happening in your head? I was pretty scared at the time you know, deciding to become a whistleblower, especially in that high stakes of a situation. And are you on your own? 
Yeah. Your parents, do they know? They didn't know at the time. Um, they found <laughs> okay. out in the news. I didn't really tell anyone. Shit. And, uh, you know, it's like jumping off a cliff without knowing if you have a parachute. Yeah. Um, in, in the beginning, I didn't know which way it was going to be, right? Uh, the people I was whistleblowing against are the people who won. And that's that's the scary part. So I got lucky that after I was in Thailand for just a couple of weeks, I had a letter from the British Parliament inviting me to testify. I'm a human rights lawyer. I know how that goes. You're protected if you give testimony in Parliament. And you can also publish documents through Parliament, um, which you can't be sued for publishing. So I was really happy to have that opportunity. For me, it felt like an olive branch to say like, hey, we're going to hear you out and we're going to try to protect you so that you can say what you need to say. But with Cambridge Analytica gone, the threat isn't really gone, right? I mean, so Facebook's still out there. Palantir just had a huge IPO. You know, big data and companies are using this information still to influence people all the time, right? So despite and in spite of everything that you did, has anything really changed? So we've had a lot of great successes, I would say, in terms of new privacy and data protection laws being passed in different countries, countries starting to write these regulations for the first time, social media being held to account in some way, shape or form. Not, It's not good enough yet, but we're, we're trying to get there with what we actually need for legal accountability. And we're starting to actually get into the real nitty gritty of how do we need to regulate social media or how do we need to have technology function in order to have legal accountability in our digital lives in the same way that we do in our analog lives. And do you think, uh, do you think that decision-making is being done by, by us, by community, by some of the lobby groups, or do you think it's being done by Jack and Mark? It's definitely not being done by them. Um, their lobbyists are fighting to protect them, but I think the public at large and legislators themselves are too angry to let that be the pervasive voice. I don't think big tech has the pervasive voice. I just think we haven't realized the gravity of the problem until recently. And now that we understand the gravity of the problem, we need to be addressing these issues in a much more uh, technically complex way and actually looking at how technology works. Luckily, in the United States, we've started to get there in terms of legislators actually having an understanding of how the back end of social media platforms work, for instance. Like we have federal laws that are sitting there in Congress to be considered that ban the use of algorithmic amplification, for example. You don't see that in many countries, but we're getting hyper-technical in the United States, luckily. And that's what I always encourage legislators to do is do not make an overarching law that could be interpreted in many different ways. Make a very technical law that exactly corresponds to how technology works. Otherwise, these laws are not enforceable. So now we're getting to a point where we've realized if someone is inciting violence on a platform... Platforms are only going to act if actual violence happens afterwards. Incitement by itself apparently was not enough. We have plenty of laws in our analog life that we cannot enforce in our digital lives. Not that we can't legally enforce it, 
it has been impossible to do it. We've been trying to do it. So when you can incite violence and billions of people can hear you, I don't understand why that wouldn't be a bigger consequence than screaming it in a town square. So are you optimistic? Whew. I am eternally optimistic, uh, which has been my downfall in the past. <laughs> But I, I really do think that right now we're going in the right direction. Although these days I consider myself a very staunch independent that is not excited about what either of the parties are doing. I know for sure that because the Democrats now have the Senate and the presidency, that data protection, privacy, and regulation of social media is at the top of their agenda, and we're actually going to get some federal legislation passed. I don't, I, I've been working really hard with tons of different states, doing it state to state, hoping in a kind of cannabis legalization model that <laughs> eventually you can get it through nationally. So if you could go back in time... Um, and put yourself back into Cambridge Analytica. Is there something that you could have done that could have prevented Donald Trump coming into power? Is there a button you could have pushed that could have prevented the last uh, four years? I don't think any one person is uh, capable of things like that, but I surely do wish I had enough information at the time to become a whistleblower before he won the election. Well... Brittany, I'm super grateful for the, the conversation. I found it very thoroughly and uh, enlightening. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Absolutely. Pleasure. And that concludes our episode for today. Thank you to Brittany Kaiser for her important work, but also the behind-the-scenes political gossip. Influence is hosted by me, Damian Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby, with editing from Elise Hugh. Sound engineering by Mark Bush. Our WeTransfer credit producer is Linda Mertens. And a massive thanks to Center Sound, our excellent studio here in Amsterdam. You can find Influence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We've got a good lineup this season. Subscribe to make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you're enjoying the show, let us know by rating us or leaving a review. You can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield. If there's anyone you think we should interview, we'd love to hear from you. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. Be back next week.